last week, Patrick talked about Romans 9, and he kind of did this big perspective of God being sovereign, good, and wise, and kind of those big arching statements and characteristics. And now we're just going to kind of hone in on what that looks like in terms of the microcosm of our lives and how our free will and God's sovereignty interact. But um, we're going to do an opening question, and we like doing this at Renew, where we get to kind of just talk to the people around us, you know, two or three people, um, trying to get to know them, but also answering this question together, okay? So make sure no one's left out, but what gives you the feels, right? For me, like Liam, like I was like kissing him one day, and I was telling him I love you, but I do that all the time, but that time my heart kind of like, like felt something, and then Pixar movies. I always cry. Um, and then what used to give you the feels, but not anymore. And so for me, I was an English ministry pastor. This is actually really sad and not godly. But uh, I did, like, there are, like, these, there's these Chinese churches where our parents, like, uh, become Christian and, and do church. And then our, the kids' ministry kind of grows up, and then they start their own English ministry. But then there's all of these like cultural and power dynamics, especially at my old church. And I'm just kind of over that ministry. And so when people tell me, oh, I'm an English pastor at a Chinese church, I'm just like, run away. Just run, child, run. If you couldn't hear me, I said, run away, run, child, run. And so, um, yeah, I'm done. I'm done with that ministry. But, you know, God could ironically... Anyways, so if you guys could just uh, share on these two questions, that'd be great. You have like, all right, we got so much material to cover, guys. I just want to apologize because you're going to miss lunch and dinner. Um, if you need a Bible, go ahead and grab one in the back. We're going to go through scripture together as we usually do, but this time um, we're going to go through some passages that aren't on the slides. And so again, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. That's what Romans 9 is all about. And it, it's, it's brought up because Paul is anticipating this question, and he poses it like, did God fa fail Israel? And so he talks about sovereignty theologically, and then he applies it to the nation of Israel. But when we look at sovereignty, I think there's a lot of questions uh, that come up. Like, man, if God's sovereign, like, should we take any blame, or should we be accountable for our own actions? Paul raises that question. And then also, how does sovereignty and free will interact? Is free will completely trumped when sovereignty is in play? Does God just kind of determine everything in our lives and uh, our free will is an illusion? And then I think there's also parts of sovereignty that kind of rubs us the wrong way, being Americans, you know, who are all about free will, being mo freedom, being millennials where we desire to um, create our own purpose, to create our own destiny, to go where we want to go, and to have this concept that God's in control um, ultimately and not us, I think can be like uh, tough on our values. But I hope that we could just for one moment put our questions aside, put those, some of those values aside, those conflicting values, and say, man, I'm just really glad that God's in control. Like, I'd rather him be in control than whoever has the most and biggest guns. I'd rather him be in control than humanity choosing our own future and be becoming like zombies, right? I'd rather him in be in control 
than anything else, and that his sovereignty should bring first and foremost the sense of peace to his children. That in the darkest moments of human history, if you can imagine being a Christian in uh, Nazi Germany or in Stalin's Russia, when everything looks like it's going to crap, right? And you're wondering, man, maybe the whole world is going to be taken over by fascism. Maybe the whole world is going to be conquered by the Axis powers. And then you step back and say, wait, God is sovereign, and he wins. And in the midst of the greatest darkness in our lives or in our history, there's this comfort and confidence. I might not see it. It might not be in my generation, but he wipes every tear from our eyes that he replaces the sun and he shines brightly and the world is united and there's peace and prosperity, that there's a weight to that kind of acknowledgement over his sovereignty. And I hope that there's this deep celebration, worship, and comfort that comes when we acknowledge that. You know, that's what I think Revelations is about. At the end of the day, God wins, and he lets us know, right? He lets us know that he has not only the beginning and middle part of the story written, but the end as well, that he reigns and he rules. And, and I'm so thankful that no human, no nation is going to be able to trump the ending that God has. But there are questions. And so if you look at Romans chapter 9 with me, uh, this, this next slide, but you could please turn to it in your Bibles or your smartphones. Romans chapter 9. We're going to recap some of the passages that um, Patrick went through and then continue through, through it. But it says, Now before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And uh, we talked about this in our Bible study. But here is an election or a purpose that God had ordained. And it didn't matter. Human choice didn't matter in this, in this moment that God was going to have Jacob carry the lineage um, to the birth of Christ. And that's why he says that Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He wasn't saying that he actively hated Esau like an enemy, but that by comparison, he had chosen Jacob to do one of the most incredible acts of human history was to be a part of the lineage of Christ. Although Esau, God loved as well. He blessed him with riches I believe Esau was a Christian, or not a Christian, but believer in, in God and, and, um, and going to heaven, right? But there's that comparison of degrees. So it's like saying, I love Liam, and in comparison to Liam, I hate all other babies, right? Because I'm not going to like change your baby's diaper when your baby's crying. I'm probably going to hand them back to you if you don't judge me, you know? And so it's speaking in, in the terms of comparison, similar to Jesus when he says, you know, compared to following me, you should hate your mother and father. And, but he doesn't mean like 
hate them and be mean to them. He's saying in terms of degree and comparison. But here we find that God is electing um, Jacob to do something amazing in human history. And in the next slide, it says, it, it, it kind of anticipates the question, well, then shall we say, is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Therefore, it does not depend on human desire, but on God's mercy. Mm. Kaylee, here's $20. And um, I wonder if when we think about justice, what, how we define justice to be. Because it seems that as God is choosing Jacob, and, and, and he's anticipating uh, this question, is God unjust? It feels like Paul is sidestepping the issue, right? He's saying he's going from this category of justice, and he answers it in this different category of mercy. And how I want to illustrate this is by giving Kaylee $20. Because at the end of the day, Justice is giving people what they deserve, right? And so none of you guys deserve my $20. Does that make sense? You guys, I didn't even give you an opportunity to earn it. None of you did, you know, any chores around the house for me, although there are some chores I would pay $20 for. And, um, and yet I chose to give Kaylee $20. And so you can't accuse me of being unjust because none of you deserved $20. But me giving Kaylee $20 is just an act of mercy. Um, justice, by definition, is getting what you deserve. Mercy, by definition, is getting what you don't deserve. And so when Paul jumps categories, he's saying God loving Jacob to the extent of allowing him to be a part of Jesus' uh, line um, is an act of mercy. And justice is none of us, you know, getting to be in the line of Jesus. None of us getting salvation. Justice is getting what we deserve, which is punishment and condemnation for our sin. Anything outside of that is the mercy of God. And so he moves categories because he's saying that it's not even about justice when God gives favor on someone, when God loves someone, when God chooses someone to be a part of his kingdom, when someone hears the gospel, the, the category isn't justice, it's mercy. It's him giving and extending himself in a place where we don't deserve. Next slide. I think it's easier to conceptualize, uh-oh, next slide, next slide. Yay. Um, it's easy to conceptualize this when it's um, in the positive, right? God giving mercy to someone. It's harder to conceptualize this when it's in the negative. And so we have a positive example of Jacob getting what he doesn't deserve. And then we have Pharaoh being a negative example, an antithesis of Jacob. And it says, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed to all the earth. And he repeats this line, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, but he hardens those whom he wants to harden. 
And here I want to kind of come down into uh, a mic like a microcosm way and look at the story of Pharaoh because it seems to be unfair, still unjust, I guess, for God to actively harden someone's heart, right? For God to harden someone's heart so that he can display his power and justice through him. That doesn't seem right, right? For him to be like, you get mercy, you get mercy, you get mercy, and we're going to harden your heart. Sorry. Your heart's hard. You're just, you're done, you know? You're, you're going to get judged. God's wrath is going to be displayed in you, but Daniel, mercy for you. $20 for you. A car for you. Okay, and then we're on to Oprah Winfrey's show. So if you guys can turn to Exodus, we're going to kind of time travel here and go to the, right before the inauguration of Israel, after Jacob and Esau. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the back. Exodus chapter 8, this is kind of right at the beginning of the plagues, right? Um, actually, chapter 7. It's at, at the beginning of the plagues, and we're just going to walk through each plague. And what Moses approaches Pharaoh with is this request. He says, I want to, you to let our people go to this mountain to worship. And every time Pharaoh says no, God... Yahweh declares war on Egypt, which is a big deal. Egypt is the most powerful country in the world at the time. So think about it as God declaring war on the U.S. Like, what would that look like? And not only did the Egyptians represent their country in a nationalistic perspective, they represented divinities as well. And so a lot of countries not only feared Egypt, but feared their gods. A lot of countries around Egypt not only... Uh, not only, not only like feared Egypt, but would worship their gods because their gods made Egypt prosper. That was the concept at the time. And now God, uh, Yahweh, is declaring war not only on Egypt, but their gods. And so when you look at the plagues, each one is actually an attack on a specific god that the Egyptians were worshiping. So they would worship frogs for a specific purpose. God would attack the frogs, they, <laughs> or plague them with frogs in poetic irony. God, uh, the Egyptians worshipped the sun, and God would darken the sun in poetic irony. The Egyptians are worshipping the Nile. God turned the Nile into blood. If you, yeah, so on and so forth. But what's important to me here in uh, conjunction with the sermon is how is the state of Pharaoh's heart? at the end of each plague, how his heart responds to the Lord. That's what we're focusing on, okay? Uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 12, Pharaoh turns his staff into a snake. The Pharaoh's Egyptians are over, able to do the same thing. Verse 13, Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart becomes hard, and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. And then the plague of blood in chapter 8, turning the Nile into uh, blood. And then in chapter 8, verse uh, 15, there's frogs. So all these frogs are hopping around. Uh, Pharaoh's upset and annoyed. And then he's like, hey, Moses, come over. Tell the frogs to leave. All the frogs died. They got to pile them up. It smells terrible, as it says in uh, chapter 8. 8 verse 14, right? It reeked. 
And then in 15, it says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart and did not listen to Moses and Aaron. And then there's the plague of the gnats. In verse 32, it says, but this time after the gnats were gone, because Pharaoh told Moses that he would release the people to worship, right? That's kind of the pattern. There's a plague. Pharaoh says, sorry, I'll actually release them. Moses, you know, stops the plague, and then Pharaoh recants, right? And so in verse 32, again, but this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Verse 9, livestock, all, all the horses and donkeys and, and cattle, sheep and goat, God strikes down, but then all the Israelites' uh, ones are, are still alive. And then um, verse 7 of chapter 9 says, Yet his heart was unyielding, and he did not let the people go. Then there's boils. Uh, this sucks. So everywhere sore. You can't walk around. I, I don't sleep well if my mat has like grains of sand on it. Have you read the book, The Princess and the Pea? I am the princess, okay? And so here, you have boils all over your body. And then, um, and then verse 12, there's a turning point here. And it's a very serious, severe, and I think frightening turning point. Where instead of it saying, Pharaoh hardens his heart, or Pharaoh does not yield his heart, verse 12, and this is uh, in conjunction with verse 18 in Romans chapter 9, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. And from then on, God hardens his heart over and over again. So there's this transition and interplay between the human heart and, and his consistent disobedience and desire to harden his heart. And then there's kind of this point of no return, which is, again, extremely frightening, where God takes his will to harden his heart, and he solidifies it. And now God is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart. Um, verse 25 of chapter 9, Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not let the Israelites go. And then verse 20 of chapter 10 in Exodus, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the people go. That's after the locusts. Then there's the plague of darkness. Um, verse 27, after the plague, kind of the whole rhythm of, okay, I'm sorry, let the sun come back. Oh, never mind, I'm not, gonna, I'm not really sorry. Verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then there's the firstborn, serious, really serious plague. And of course, if, if Pharaoh had repented or if the nations repented, it wouldn't come down to this. But this plague of killing the firstborn was actually a mirror to earlier in Exodus where the Pharaoh ordered all of Israel's sons to be murdered. Um, then they crossed the Red Sea, and then the last part is chapter 14, verse 4. Um, God hardening Pharaoh's heart again. Chapter 14, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. And I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army in Egypt. Again, this, I think that this is m the most clear interplay between God's sovereignty and human free will. Where as we harden our own hearts, 
that there comes a point where his sovereignty kicks in and he uses us to display his glory through wrath and power. And that's what happens to Egypt. After Egypt gets decimated, not completely, but, you know, uh, maimed by the Lord, all the nations around Egypt, all of the known world at the time, hears about this God, and they start to fear him. This is God's pronouncement to the world that he is the most powerful being on earth. Before that, he's just the God of a little family. But now everyone knows about him, and he, they fear him. And nations come, and they try to make peace with Israel. They learn about this God. There's queens and kings who travel thousands of miles to hear about Yahweh, to worship at his temple. Um, Israelites, the Jews, have the most gracious immigration policies, if you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, because God is welcoming people to worship him, to come under him, to be ruled by him. And so in the next verse, if you uh, go to it, if God, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath, make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And so we see God's patience um, continuing to unfold to the Egyptian people and their unwillingness to repent. And I think that's a scary thing to see the hand of God and say, I don't want that. And there's moments in Jesus' ministry where he warns people about that. And there's moments where he actually pulls away from doing miracles. If you read the accounts of Jesus in his hometown and other places, it will say that people doubted and he didn't do miracles. And the reason is because if he were to do miracles in the face of doubt, they would continue to doubt and, they could, and, and that doubt would harden their hearts and bring them closer to that point where they become objects of God's uh, wrath. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, again, you have to turn there in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus um, was brought, there, there were people who brought to him the demon-possessed, the lame and the blind um, and the mute, and Jesus would heal them. And all the people were astonished, right? When you see a demon-possessed person healed, which I know most of us haven't seen that, but if you just see someone who was blind and mute being uh, healed, being able to see and speak again, you'd be amazed. And so all these people were amazed, and they asked, could this be the son of David? Chapter 12, verse 23. And what they mean is, is this the Messiah? That's another term for son of David. Is this the promised Messiah? And then look at what the Pharisees say. They say, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow casts out demons. So they see this really explicit miracle, similar to uh, Pharaoh. There's no doubt about it that there's divine power that's happening here, like an amazing miracle. And they say it's actually from demons. And so to the degree that God reveals himself and we deny it is to the degree 
that our hearts become hardened. And so what does Jesus reply to this? He, this is the most stern thing I think he's ever said. He says in verse 30, um, let's see, whoever is not, uh, let's see, verse 31 of chapter 12 of Matthew. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, neither in this age or the age to come. What he's saying is that when you see, when someone sees an explicit act of God and walks away and denies it's from him, what left is there for God to do, right? Like, there's nothing else. And that's why when the angels fell and became demons, there is no course of repentance for them because they saw the full glory of God and they walked away from him. Hebrews chapter 10 gives a very severe warning, um, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 5 gives a severe warning to us who have grown up as Christians, who have heard the gospel over and over again, who go to church, who are PKs. And he says, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, if you have your Bibles, again, please turn there. It says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word and the power of the age of come, to come, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. You know, I think about the people that Jesus loved to minister to. It was the sinners. It was the Pharisees. It was the tax collectors. It was people who heard the gospel and was floored by it. Like, wow, I can't believe God would forgive me. Just forgive me. I can't believe that he would send his son to take my place, to go on the cross, to take my shame. I need this kind of God. I want to worship him. The freshness, the um, scandalousness of the gospel, hearing it for the first time, and people coming to their knees. And then what's scary is, I think, the Christian, the Pharisee, who they've heard it before. They've memorized the gospel. They know that Jesus died, and then they say, I don't, that doesn't really move me anymore. My heart is hardened to that. I'd rather go this other way. And I think at some point, our heart continues to callous and be hardened, and it's like, man, if you really believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and loves you and resurrected and you, that doesn't move you? Like, what else on this universe or hypothetically could God do for you? And so Hebrews chapter 6 is Paul grieving over those who have heard the gospel and it's become worthless to them. In the next slide... I just think about, um, one more, one more slide, please. I just think about how we can't earn salvation, right? 
we can't earn the $20 that I gave Kaylee. Like, I didn't even give you an option for it. And the same way, we can't earn the gospel, we can't earn the favor of God, we can't earn our ways to heaven. And so what can we do? What matters to the Lord? And I think it's all about your heart. Your heart is what matters to Him. Whether you have a soft heart before the Lord, an open heart, a heart that says, hey, I want more of God in my life. I want to hear His voice. I want to fall in love with Him. I want to repent of my sins. That matters to Him, a softening of our hearts. What else matters to Him is a hardening of our hearts. And at the end, at the end of our life for sure, Whichever road you go on, whether your heart is soft before the Lord and it continues in that softness and tenderness before Him, where you want more of Him, where you repent more quickly, where you desire Him more deeply, you know the beautiful part about heaven is that that heart that is continually wanting to focus in loving God and being, being tender before Him in heaven, what happens is that it's solidified and it becomes immovable and we don't waver anymore and it's perfected. Our will to love the Lord is perfected. But also a hardened heart towards God where we continue in sin and things that used to feel bad don't feel bad anymore, where he convicts us and we say, oh, we don't want to live in guilt or conviction, or ever feel bad about anything we do. And, and his voice goes from these loud, um, you know, warnings into soft whispers, into silence, and our heart becomes callous. You know, in eternity, and maybe in this life, God decides to solidify that heart as well, the heart that we choose to have. And that's what eternity apart from the Lord looks like. He says, this is what you've always wanted, and now it's yours. My prayer for all of us is that we will long to have a tender heart to the Lord. At the end of the day, he's glorified. He's glorified and worshipped when our hearts are soft towards him and we receive his mercy and the gospel and his grace and we fall in love with him there's this deep adoration and worship there but there's also worship in him pursuing justice and punishing evil there's glory in that as well and that's how paul ends uh that section both glorify the lord but i long to be a heart that's soft and a recipient of his mercy. You know, when I was in fifth grade, um, my first time in fifth grade, we collected tickets, and we do this in our children's ministry. You get tickets, and then you could buy something, right? If you save up enough tickets, you could buy something from this box. And uh, I always want to be like the toy shop guy, so whenever they do that, I'm like, Nina, let me know, so I could like give toys to the kids. And she says no, because she worked for that. And um, <laughs> I got to do that a few times. 
Anyways, I was in fifth grade. I'm collecting tickets, and I really want this like handheld kind of um, pinball machine. It was like phenomenal and um, the best toy you could ever own. And so I'm like staring at it. I'm collecting tickets every day on my best behavior. And then, and then the school year ends, and I didn't get enough tickets. I'm trying to like barter with my, like, with my teacher, and she's like, nope, sorry, you didn't get enough. And I was like so mad, and I just started staring at that toy box, right? And then everyone else walked away, and I just ran up, and I grabbed it, and I put it in my pocket, and I walked away. And I was like, there was such like guilty pleasure there. But then my friend, his name's Jason, uh, strong Christian, through college and, and high school, became actually a college football player. We were, we were great friends, and we'd play like handball together, we would talk, you know, eat ice cream. And he saw me do that. And immediately he told on me. Snitches get stitches. Anyways, um, and uh, I was like so mad at him, right? I was like, why would you tell me we're friends? Friends don't tell on friends. And then he started crying. And he says, I told on you because I don't want you to grow up and be a thief. I don't want you to grow up and go to jail. Like a fifth grader, right? And I think that's what discipline is supposed to do. Discipline is supposed to soften our hearts. Discipline is supposed to put us in this position where we repent and we say, I did wrong and I want to go another way. You know, when we are faced with discipline, when we are faced with the conviction of the Spirit, we always have two choices. We can soften our heart or we can harden it. The state of our heart is what God sees. The state of our heart is the one thing that counts before the Lord, right? Not our righteousness, not our actions, but whether we want him or whether we want other things. Whether we want forgiveness or whether we want bitterness, whether we want to follow him or whether we want to walk away, that state of our heart counts before the Lord. And I wonder, as you come in this morning, what parts of your heart feel callous? What parts of your life you've said, you know what, I'm just going to accept this sin, and God will have to deal with that? What part of your life where you're saying, man, like, I'm just bitter here, and I'm just going to hold on to that? What part of, what people in your life where you're just like, I'm just not going to forgive him, but I'm still going to be a Christian? Every time we walk away from the Lord, his voice becomes softer and his conviction becomes less potent. But every time we say, I choose you, Lord. I choose to love you. I choose to be convicted by you and I receive your forgiveness. I choose to re-engage with your spirit. Our hearts become tender again. I think that's the one thing he longs for. You know, we're just going to uh, close our time together with two th- three things, I guess. The next slide is just a moment where I would love for us to pray for each other, to have a tender heart before the Lord. And maybe there's just one or two things you want to share with the person next to you. Like, man, I've, this is, I've been calloused here. Like, 
I'm pissed off at church. I'm pissed off at um, my friend. I can't forgive this person. My parents suck. Um, you know, like what has made your heart less tender and how can we just pray that for each other in terms of repentance? The second thing I want us to do is just take communion and to remember that's not something we do earn, right? We get to choose our heart and God freely gives us forgiveness. I hope that we get to receive that today and I hope that we get to go to the communion table with a tender heart as we remember the death of Christ and what he's paid for us on the cross. And thirdly, as we worship, I hope that these words would have new weight. I think worship is one of the ways that we really get to um, be abandoned and allow our heart to kind of open up again before God. And I hope that that happens as well. And my prayer for all of us is that as we walk through this life, we will see our heart become more and more tender to the Lord instead of heart hard and calloused. God, we just give you the rest of this time where we just invite your spirit to work in our lives in prayer and communion and worship that those of us who have come in with a calloused heart, that you would just start to pull that back, that you would give us the feels again for your spirit, that you would engage us in really meaningful ways this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.